0: Hello and welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm Anna, editor of Every Woman, and every month we'll be bringing you the stories, insights and opinions of inspiring women in business on a wide range of topics, asking the questions you want the answers to, and doubtless prompting some more in the process. Today we're here to talk about improvisation in your everyday life and business with CEO of 4D Human Being, Philippa Waller whose TEDx Glasgow talk, The Improvising Mindset, How Every Connection and Interaction Shapes Your Reality, is on the 1st of June. So, we're delighted to welcome Philippa to the studio today. Philippa, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So, the title of your TED Talk or TEDx talk, as we must call it, is the improvising mindset, how every connection and interaction shapes reality. So let's start with this idea of improvisation and the perception of improvisation, because it is something that if you're not an actor, you might not be familiar with.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, And in fact, maybe even some actors um, would try to avoid it as well. That was certainly my experience when I was an actor. But yeah, so improvising, it is the art of uh, stepping on to a stage or into a a space and creating a scene together. So no script. Um, People may have seen comedy improvisation on programs like Whose Line Is It Anyway? And uh, I was part of a troupe called The Spontaneity Shop years ago. I was a reluctant, uh, initially really reluctant. I was called by an ex-drama school teacher to go along and um, do a class in improv. And actually quite a few actors... Don't love it because actors like a script, like you know who you are, where you are, and you know what the other person is about to say to you, um, which is really nice (laughs) in life. Um, But as an improviser, you don't. And actually, that's an amazing toolkit and skill to have ultimately. But yeah, I was reluctant, but I went along and it was taught in such a different way. And really put me in a good state. It was all about reducing anxiety that I stayed with it. I became part of the troupe. Um, We traveled all over the world doing comedy improv um, and it led to storytelling and writing. And it was a real game changer for me.
0: So, obviously, all of this is is going into your TED Talk, uh, which you'll do at TEDx Talk. Yes, TEDx. Um, <laughs> TEDx Glasgow. TEDx Glasgow on the 1st of June um, under the theme Rethink. Yes. So, tell me, how did that come about and, you know, how are you conveying this in the...
1: In the TED Talk? Yeah, so it came about through some work I was doing with a client, actually. I'm using improv for senior leadership teams and how to... Really, it's the behavioural tool for systems thinking, to put it in its grand speak. But as a leader, how can we actually step in and be agile and fluid and have each other's backs and all those wonderful skills that improvisers have? How can we apply that to leadership teams and their teams? So I was doing a bit of work there and... A wonderful woman, um, Jean Kerr, I'll say her name, because she's also doing a TEDx talk at Glasgow. Um, She she loved what I was doing there, and she spoke to um, her friend at TEDx, Pauline, who loved the idea. And actually, what was really interesting about it, they've been amazing at TEDx. Um, I think initially they were like, what is this? (laughs) And uh, I had a couple of meetings with them. And what the theme is Rethink. And so, and obviously from my perspective, improvising is rethinking how we interact, you know, every day, how we respond to what life throws us. And I think it was quite an edgy, you know, an edgy topic for them to bring in. You know, that word is quite, you know, can be quite, yeah, edgy, I suppose, to some people, quite sort of... Ooh, improvisation. Yeah, improvisation. Yeah. Um, and they really wanted to take a risk and do something different. And um, even... Have potentially some interaction with the audience, which, as I say that, <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, people won't come. But I'm, I never, never pull anybody up on stage. It's all about turning to the person next to you and, and uh, you know, having a bit of a play, getting into a play state. Um, but so really, it was also rethinking what what can we do with a TEDx talk? It doesn't have to be someone talking at you for 13 18 minutes actually it could we could be literally be improvising in terms of we we we're all going to be involved in this so it really is a rethink on so many levels so i really applaud them um for yeah going out on walking. a limb, the walk walking <laughs> the walk yeah and i'm really looking forward to it yeah i'm super excited
0: but i want to talk about the the game changer for you taking the side of improvisation um and then applying it to a wider context um, so in your talk i don't want to give too much away but you set the scene with an anecdote about how you have a mission to get the most miserable dry cleaner in London to basically smile at you. Um, And and it's often so that great wisdom starts with these kind of small happenings. So tell me about how this brought improvisation into a sort of a clarity for you to use as a life tool rather than just a stagecraft.
1: Well, actually what I'm going to do, I'm going to wind back slightly because we were I was in an improv troupe, as I said, and I was working with my um, friend and writing partner, Deborah Frances White, and we were lucky enough to be, or talented enough, I don't know, or both, <laughs> to <laughs> be <Obviously>. always talented. <laughs> um, and Monica Henderson also at the time, who's a, a very um, successful writer now out in the States. And we were writing for Hollywood, couldn't get hired in London, don't ask me, but we were writing in Hollywood. And what we found going around the studios was that the studio executives really were looking for a reason to not send your script upstairs because they were just inundated with scripts. Everyone's writing a script in in Hollywood. So we worked out, if we took our improv skills into those meetings and started saying yes and, which we'll talk about in a minute, started to build with the studio executives, started to make them feel like they were part of creating the story. Suddenly they were much more invested and our script went upstairs and we sold our first um, script in Hollywood. So that was the beginning of understanding how to use improv in life, if you like. But I suppose the difference between that and the dry cleaner story was that we'd started to use it as a relationship builder to get something from it to sort of there, you know, there was an end goal there. Whereas the story about the dry cleaner. So I went into the dry cleaners. I just moved to a new flat in North London, took my clothes in and he was so miserable. And, um, and I came out and, uh, the person who was with me said, well, we're never going back there again. We're not giving him, you know, not giving him your money. And I, and I thought, no, actually, hang on, there's something, there's something interesting here. I don't necessarily have to accept that. I could just change this, not because there's anything in it for me, there's other dry cleaners all over London, but actually just to see if I can change the experience for myself. And for the dry cleaner. Mm. And it took a while. It did take a long time. He still remembers you, I'm sure. I'm sure. sure, Well, actually, I think he probably does because after a while, you know, our relationship, you know, definitely, you know, nothing weird or anything, but he, you know, he definitely knew who I was and he would, you know, make a point of being really sort of, you know, jolly when I went in and to the point where, you know, I say in the talk, he was actually Cellophane wrapping my clothes, you know, by the end of it, which, you know, I could see other customers sort of slightly being thrown out onto the wet pavement. But, you know, I was there with my sort of rather, rather um, special package. Um, And it took some time. But I think that, I think for me, the key thing about the dry cleaner story is you can use improv not for gain, not to sort of manipulate, but actually just to change the experience, Mm. you know, Mm. to not get, but to give so let's talk about the rules of improv I mean yeah. uh, with the
0: dry cleaner who's now become
1: <laughs> a very special character, <laughs> very special in, my character, character in your
0: life, <laughs> most people would take you know his uh not even reaction his sort of manner as the final bit, but you talk a lot about in how in uh, improvisation everything is an offer, so for the people listening who might have no idea about the rules of improv and how it works.
1: Talk me through that a little bit. Yes. So there are various um, rules in improv. So I won't go into into all of them now because um, I unpack those in the talk. But yeah, one of the key ones is that everything is an offer. So as an improviser, what you learn is as you step on stage with your fellow improviser in the team, even if they're just standing there blankly staring at you, you've got to create something. Something's got to happen. And so you have to take the blank stare as the offer. You know, so we would always joke about if a, if, a, if a teammate just suddenly froze and didn't know what to say, you might say something like, oh, that's really nice, Bob. 20 years of marriage and you can't even speak to me. You know, you'd, you'd start to use it <laughs> yeah. because it's all you've got. So you can think about offers in life as anything, an event, uh, the way somebody is behind a coffee counter, a situation that arises. If you like everything that happens is an offer. And actually what's, I think what's really interesting about that as well is that we can get quite focused on the main sort of tasks and doings of our life. So I sort of often think about, you know, if you're identified with being a really charitable, lovely person and you're on your way to work in a soup kitchen and that's your sort of, that's your narrative, that's the scene that you're creating for the day and that's who you are. But on the way there, somebody's broken down on the side of the road and in distress and you just get annoyed with them and sort of, you know, sort of your, you know, sort of flick away, flick your hand at them and sort of be annoyed with them because they're blocking your path. Actually, that is also part of your narrative. Now, you're not just the charity soup kitchen worker. You just had an offer right there. And actually you responded in a way that probably if you were more conscious of it, that wouldn't necessarily be who you wanted to be in that moment. And that's not an aberration. You're not just the soup kitchen charity. You are also the person who's just been angry with the person who's broken down at the side of the road. So if you like, everything is an offer. So we're pretty much making choices in every minute of our lives. And this is,
0: I mean, I was going to say, you know, what does that do in terms of shifting our mindset? Obviously, I think it would make us much more empowered, but can you unpack that a little bit?
1: Well, I think we are making choices, although, you know, there's a whole sort of, you know, deep and existential debate about free will there, but we are making choices. It's just a lot of them might be unconscious. Mm. So, you know, even the clothes you put on in the morning, you, you, you may think you're not, you, that you're not thinking about it, but somewhere along the line, because of your experience, that is a choice. The way that you, you know, if you turn up to work in a, you know, a very short skirt and showing, you know, showing your legs, um, that, whether, that, whether you really thought about that in the morning or not... Mm. was a choice. And that is, you know, that is then your offer to the world, if you like. So yeah, we are making, we are making choices all the time. Because
0: I suppose that for a lot of people, the mindset is that, you know, we can make our own choices perhaps, but we can't make the choices of other people. And we put ourselves in quite um, a sort of weakened position by saying, this is not, maybe not consciously, but this is being done to us or they have the power. You talk about how we're co-creating ourselves and, and our experiences in every moment. And I suppose my question to you is how much power do we actually have to influence outcomes?
1: Yeah, it's such, it's such a good question. I suppose, you know, my, my, my take on that is that we, we like the idea of certainty. And we, you know, we're, we're talking a lot at the moment about change and uncertainty and how sort of discombobulating it is. So we like uncertainty. We don't necessarily like the idea that it's all a bit random and we haven't got that much control over it. But actually what we do have control over, I think are two things. One is the way that we interact with other people will change the dynamic of that experience. Like we know that from relationships, you know, if your partner annoys you, Um, and you, you know, you go into the fight, you know, that that's what you've got. That's what you're creating for the day. You know, my partner years ago said to me one morning, I woke up really grumpy. I'm not a morning person. And uh, I woke up really grumpy and I was just in a sort of grot, you know, just the body, the body just sort of, it was in charge, you know, of my my, my thinking and my mouth. And and he just stopped me and he just said, what do you want to create today? Mm. And it's a really good question. And I suppose the other thing is, so we have that, we have that co-creation, if you like, we have some influence over what we create with each other. And, and we know that, don't we? If we go into a coffee shop and someone's rude to us, that will sort of stay with us for the day. If we go into a coffee shop and somebody um, gives us the extra bit of money for the coffee that we didn't have, like that, that will stay with us as well in a totally different way. So we've got that. The second thing, which is, you know, terrible things happen in life. You know, and that could be sort of, you know, from world wars to individual tragedies. What we do have is the choice of how we meet those things. We can't, we can't necessarily change those events. There's a Viktor Frankl um, quote that's attributed to him, which is between stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space lies our choice and in our choice lies our growth and our freedom. And he was writing from a concentration camp in the Second World War. So he was talking about people meeting the most horrific of circumstances and making a choice of how they responded. So even, even at that point, still f- choosing to find meaning that supported them in some way. And when people lost meaning, when people felt they had no choice left, he noticed that that, uh, that was usually um, you know, the, the, the demise of that individual. So how, that's a very extreme example, yeah. but you know, how do we meet those difficult circumstances?
0: I think, you know, there's sort of words that keep coming up and they're very powerful. It's a dynamic. You talk a lot about dynamic and it's, I think it's important perhaps for us to realize that we are in a dynamic and, uh, and that, you know, we're kind of fooling ourselves really, aren't we? If we think there are certainties and in a sense, in order for improv to become a life tool, we need to get rid of expectations. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. I
1: mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's both wonderful and very difficult, isn't it? Because that's right. We, we, we. If you think about how you expect people to behave or how you expect your life to turn out, and then it doesn't quite work like that. And for most people, for most people, that is the case. It certainly doesn't quite look like uh, maybe we'd planned. Um, and people don't always give us what we want. We used to have a saying as actors that the audience never give you what you want. You know? <laughs> um, and then we, and the, so if we've got expectations, then we are invariably disappointed. And this is particularly, you know, we can p- probably particularly resonate with this. Um, in partnerships. So, the Gottman Institute, who do loads of research around partnerships, they talk about 69% of the arguments that you have with your partner are the same ones repeated and repeated, the repeated and repeated patterns. And they are never going away. They mm-hmm. are never going away because you're setting your pattern. So, we might as well find a different way to be with them.
0: So, how would you do that? Let's, you know, going to ask us some practical advice. You're having a repeated um, you're in a repeated interaction, if you like. Let's take it into a work context yeah. uh, with maybe a difficult colleague or a toxic boss or something like that. Yeah. Same thing's getting repeated, repeated, repeated. What do you do
1: to take the power back? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And some of this goes right back to, of course, you know, our childhood, that we have, we have learnt relationship dynamics from being, a, uh, from being a child, from being brought up. And we've learnt what gets us love, so we've learned how to behave to stay connected. And we've also, through our conditioning, we've also got triggers. So we've got things that really sort of you know irritate us. So then we find ourselves at work and then we've got a new boss and suddenly they are absolutely tapping in to our most, you know, sort of um, vulnerable, sensitive triggers. Um, and we can't, you know, we can't stand our new boss. But actually, it's not just about the boss. It goes back to the word dynamic, that you are now, you are now in a dynamic. And if you, if you keep doing the same thing and they keep doing the same thing, because of your part, you're just in stalemate. But actually what you can do is just change, you can change one, you can change, have a very small change for yourself in how you communicate. That's particularly what we do with our organisation. It might be that actually you've got quite a, um, quite a sort of scattered sort of brainstorming idea generating way of, way of thinking and then of communicating. That's absolutely classic. And then people tend to, tend to say, oh, me and my boss don't get on. But actually it's about, it's about communication style and thinking style. So you could change one thing. You could start talking in a much more ordered way. There are three things that I want to talk to you about. It might be that your boss needs reassurance, but you don't think that because they're your, they you know, he or she is your boss. So it's t- it's taking a moment to look at what's going on in this dynamic and what does this relationship need, not what do I expect them to do, but what does this relationship need, and, ha- and what can I do to put some some of that in the mix?
0: Is it also you know not so much about what you want? Because people get very fixed, don't they? And we're, it's back to expectations. Totally. And, uh,
1: you know, that sort of rigid, this is what I want. Yeah, totally. And I mean, certainly working in organisations, the way that we work in organisations usually is there's an idea or there's a task, and then we'll get the people in to fulfil that task. And of course, with improvisation, it's the complete reverse. We've got no idea what the product is. We've got no idea what the idea is going to look like all we've got is a group of people who are going to work and play together to see what happens. So you've got complete, complete extreme ends there. And there's something about bringing some of that improvising mindset more into the business world to be able to adapt much more quickly, to be much more fluid, much more agile. What improvisers know is that they can have an idea, they can make that offer But if something else comes back that shifts it somewhere else, you can drop your offer. Knowing that you have a limitless creativity, Mm. something else will come because it's co-creation. It's not just you on your own. And that's the difference for me between (laughs) stand-up and improv. So people used to say to me all the time, oh, and I said I was an improviser. They say, oh, you do stand-up. I was like, no, I I really don't. No, (laughs) no, I don't do stand-up. Because stand-up is a solo game. And actually it's very, it's usually very, very scripted, very, very tightly scripted. Whereas improv is a team game. Someone's always got your back. And there's no script, so they are very, very different mediums.
0: Mm. I am and not a
1: stand-up, not a stash, not, <laughs> not
0: a stand-up stand stand people. Up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's even as you're talking about it, it's got that real
1: sense of creativity around it, which you know, all forward-thinking businesses, yeah. Yeah. need to develop. Absolutely. Well, if you think about, I mean, think about offers that you might miss. I mean, there's some. I mean, there's some very well-known examples, um, of course, which um, Viagra is one of them. I mean, I don't know if you know that example, but that was actually <laughs> that was actually um, that that was a drug. It was a clinical drug. Test for, I think it was for blood pressure. I think it was, I mean, it sounds about right, doesn't it, when you think about it? And um, there was a side effect that everyone was going, Oh my goodness, this is going completely wrong. Like, we'll have to stop this clinical trial. And at the time, the company who were doing the clinical trials were in very crowded offices. They actually, since then, they moved out into much more spacious offices, which actually they felt, in a way, for creativity, had a bit of a downside. But they're in these very um, packed, you know, busy offices in Kent and it meant that depart that the departments were often in the kitchen together or you know by the water cooler and it literally was a water cooler moment where somebody from a different department um, was being told at the water cooler by someone on this clinical trial oh my goodness you'll never guess what's happening on this clinical trial all the men are to are reporting back that uh, you know they are having um you know what positive po- positive, <laughs> positive effects <laughs> <laughs> um and um and they started a conversation, and actually it became an innovation. I mean, it made the company, you know, millions and millions and millions of pounds. So that was that
0: was an offer rather than a problem. Moving slightly sideways, but you talk about um, how embracing failure is an important part of improvisation. I mean, in one sense, the clinical trial is not doing what it wants. It's a failure. It's a failure, yeah, that's right. But like you say, it got embraced and then it turned into a, you know, a success. I mean, but it does seem counterintuitive to what we're normally told. And and I suppose, you know, for me, I, it would be good to know why failure is important. How does it free us up?
1: How do we my, fail yeah, well? Yeah, <laughs> I know. And my first thought there is sort of, you know, right to the heart and the gut of, you know, of my absolute sort of passion for perhaps what's needed more in our education I mean, I'm doing a second master's now and I can feel myself getting caught right back in waiting for my paper to come back with the grade on it, you know? And and I'm very conscious of that system and still the anxiety is there. And if you think about for years and years as children at that very, very um, susceptible age when our brains are very plastic, they're still forming, every day we are bedding in the message of, you'll either get a tick or a cross. You'll either be r- right or you'll fail. Um, so that's really, you know, that's really embedded in us. Whereas actually, if, if we try to be right all the time, I say this to people a lot when they're in terms of communication skills or you know, in organizations, if your goal is to be right, you have set yourself up for disappointment. You really have. Whereas, if your goal is to be curious or to be creative or to engage people, actually, failure just—it it doesn't even mean anything anymore. Um, and in a wider context, what you know is what is failure. I mean, it's all process. There's that famous parable, isn't there? Who knows what's good, what's bad? You know, the farmer. Buys a horse, the horse escapes, but then he brings back 20 horses. Suddenly so they have got 20 horses. Then the son rides the horse, he breaks his leg. Oh, that's bad. But then the military come to recruit people for a war and they can't take the son. Oh, that's good. You know, that sort of it's good, it's bad, um, uh, you know, idea that actually you don't know what, you don't know what something's going to lead to. And there's a lot of research now even around post traumatic growth, you know, even sort of the most difficult things that happen to us can lead to, you know, a completely different way of living. So, It is a real mindset and certainly from an improviser's perspective, um, the mistakes that your team members make on stage are often the absolute gems, you know, and they're the things that the audience (laughs) will remember, you know, much more than the sort of, you know, sort of clever, slightly sort of, you know, planning as you go. But somebody says someone's name wrong or something and suddenly, you know, you've got the long lost twin. You know, I mean, you you know what I mean? You've got you suddenly there's something very fresh happening. Yeah.
0: And again, it comes. I keep coming back to this expectations. and I know we've discussed that. But, you know, again, I for me, failure, failure, if expectation is the product, you know, you almost have to let go of it, don't you? You have to just because you cannot fail if you don't have any expectations
1: yeah and I think what do we I,
0: need I, instead of expectations well I
1: suppose there's a balance here isn't there there's 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 the you know it's I suppose it's the idea of holding something lightly. you know the eastern philosophies would talk about you know detached attachment you know that that the, the, there is a notion there's a will there's a want and that you know that the, there's a movement forward there's an intentionality um, and we are very you know we are evolving beings you know we are driven to evolve that is what we are um, so that is definitely, that's definitely, you know, important. It's not about sort of, oh, well, let's just all give up. That's, that's driving us and moving us all the time to create, to procreate. The most, the most fundamental form of creativity is procreation. And it's also about allowing some space to be surprised. I, I went on a walk the other day and I very rarely have space in my diary. <laughs> I wish I had more, <laughs> but I don't. And I happen to have a few hours blocked out. And I took my dog for a walk and um, I, he ran up to these other dogs and there were two women walking these other dogs. And um, they suddenly said, oh, who's, who's this dog? And I went, oh, that's my dog. And I went up and, and talked to them and we fell into conversation. And, and then as we walked around this beautiful walk, we got to this valley and one of the women, who had been a very nice conversation, said to me, oh, do you want to come in? For a cup of tea, I live in that house. And she pointed down to this sort of idyllic farmhouse in the valley, you know, this sort of sunny green glory. And I said, oh, yeah, no, I'd love to. And we Mm -hmm. had this amazing conversation, found out that we had quite a bit in common from our past and we switched numbers and that would never have happened usually because usually I, you know, everything is very tightly scheduled and we don't, if we don't have any space and it's the same in life, if we don't allow for something else... Um, we just we just contracted down into either the same thing again and again, or something that we didn't really want.
0: Or those certainties All those that cert- aren't really yeah. certain. Yeah, I feel that space might be in an upcoming podcast. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is <laughs> how my to absolute, yeah, how to create space. How to create space?
1: It's amazing, isn't it? Because even even as you open it up, and sort of get you know get support. Like I've got a PA now, and she's amazing. And, you open up that space. Yeah, and, and it gets filled. It just gets filled, doesn't it? It just pours in, doesn't it? I know, I know. That is an ongoing, ongoing piece of self-coaching there. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, we'll come back
0: to, to to space, as I said, possibly in another podcast. Um there are lots of aspects that we've drawn in here, we've been talking today. You know, reality as interactions, it's a big philosophical ask on, a, on I an interview. Like, like, I like a big philosophical ask, Well, who doesn't love a big philosophical ask? But, you know, sometimes you need to find a way to yeah. chunk it down. And yeah. for, for your everyday interactions, your everyday life, how do we not get overwhelmed by that? How best do we make this an everyday tool? Yeah. It What's is the takeaway?
1: It is a good question. I suppose two things spring to mind there as somebody who also has recently moved to... Um, a a somewhat more remote cottage with my dog, that we do need time out. Of course we do. This isn't about constantly, constantly interacting. I mean, we are wired for connection. We know that now. There's some wonderful research by um, a man called Matthew Lieberman who wrote a book called Social. Like we know that connection is is so important for us as human beings. And we know that there's, you know, there's studies going on a lot at the moment around loneliness and particularly with an aging population, although not just an aging population. Mm. But I mean, the other thing that springs to mind is, you know, you talk about that idea being overwhelming. And I suppose if I flip that and I look at how overwhelmed we are with getting stuff done and task and, you know, achieving things, getting things. And when we've got, you know, we've got a mental health crisis at the moment. So we're clearly not we're clearly doing something wrong. You know, we're clearly, we clearly haven't quite worked it out. We've got more loneliness being reported, you know, antidepressant prescriptions than ever before. So actually I wonder if rather than the idea of reality as interactions being overwhelming, it might be the balance to getting stuff done is reality. You know, it's just (laughs) just exhausting. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So we need a reboot, basically. Yeah, we need a reboot and
1: a re- we really need a reboot. Yeah, we definitely need a reboot. I, I definitely need a reboot. Yeah, we do. We need a reboot and a rebalance. Well, if you want to reboot, <laughs> the Philip
0: and Talk is out on the first of June. Uh, the link will be alongside this podcast so you can tune in and get some more inspiration on how to add improvisation and its amazing power to your life. So all that uh, leaves me to say is thank you for coming in today, Philippa. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. It's been our pleasure too. And thank you all for joining us as well on this Everywoman podcast. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time. Don't forget, in the meantime, there's a wealth of information, interest and further talking points on the Everywoman network and app if you want to access on the move. So until we meet again, have a great day and keep on living your best life.